Hello, welcome to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for, uh, it's roundabout May 4th. May the 4th be with you. You know what I'm saying. Uh, my name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Star Wars The Old Republic. Is that even around? Has EA shut that down yet? Let's, uh, let's all take part in, uh, what is it, a death pool <laughs> for uh, Star Wars Old Republic. Uh, I'm putting $5 on a year from now. How's that? What, where, where's your money? Pick a date. Uh, is that how death pools work? I've never done one of those. That, that's grim stuff. Uh, hello. Welcome to this podcast. Uh, we're doing something a little different. Uh, we are going to interview a developer. I don't do a lot of that. I would love to do more of that, by the way. Uh, but this particular interview came about um, in a unique way. Uh, I was approached by uh, Stardock, one of the representatives, uh, and she said, Hey, Tom, um, you like strategy games. You like science fiction. How would you like to do a podcast about Galactic Civilizations 3? You know, it's not out yet, but you can play an alpha of it. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you you may know, I, I'm not a huge fan of works in progress as far as playing them. I don't want to play an alpha. I don't want to play a beta. Uh, I don't want to see something with placeholder art and with systems that aren't in there yet. I would rather wait for the, the final game. You know, I've got plenty of things to spend my time on uh, and to write about and to talk about. So you finish your game, and I, I look forward to playing it at that point. But I'll patiently wait until that happens. I don't need early access and all that stuff. Um, so when I was approached uh, and asked, hey, do you want to do a podcast with the designer of Galactic Civilizations 3, which will be out next year? My initial response, my reaction was, mm, no, not really. But that would be rude. Uh, and plus, I actually am curious to talk to, I actually know Paul Boyer. He's the lead designer on Galciv 3 uh, from his time at Stardock. I've actually worked with Stardock. I did their manual for Galactic Civilizations 2. Um, so I, I, I was happy to talk to Paul, um, even though I, I don't really have a lot of uh, things personally to say about Galactic Civilizations 3, because I don't know anything about it. I haven't played the alpha. Um, but I did want to talk to Paul. I, I had an idea for a, a particular angle to take with Paul, and he was game for it. He was up for it. He uh, had some thoughtful responses. So what we have done, what Paul and I have done, is we have talked about in, in game design what makes science fiction unique. Now, uh, I'll break that down for you uh, uh, in a little bit, but I want to tell you why this came up for me and, and what this particular angle, what, where I'm coming from here. I've been playing a lot of uh, Age of Wonders 3 lately. This is a, a fantasy strategy game made by Triumph Studios, these folks in the Netherlands. They've done a great job on, on it. I have some problems with it. You can read my review a quarter to three. But when I sit down to play Age of Wonders, I don't think to myself, hey, I'm going to sit down and play a 4X, which is what a lot of turn-based strategy games are called. I don't think, I'm going to sit down and play a strategy game. I instead think, I'm going to sit down and play a fantasy game. Or, uh, you know, if I'm going to sit down and play Civilization, I think, I want to play a historical game. Or, if I'm going to play uh, Endless Space, I think, I want to play a, a sci-fi game. Uh, I, I tend to 
come to the genre first, not necessarily by its mechanics, but by its setting. And that, that's specifically for 4Xs, for strategy games. You know, when I play, e- even RTSs in a way, like do I want a fantasy RTS or a historical one? Do I want trebuchets or do I want laser tanks? Um, so that's, that's a, uh, an important part of choosing a game and of the gameplay experience. Um, so I, I tend to specifically car- compartmentalize fantasy or science fiction history um, as offering different narratives. But what I'd like to talk with Paul about is what does that do for the game mechanics? Is there anything that makes the experience different beyond just you know the, the graphics? Um, now, before we proceed, I, I want to call attention to something that we did on Quarter to Three a few months ago that we called Starship Week. I credit Bruce Garrick with this, a colleague of mine for many years. Bruce uh, emailed me, and he said, uh, Hey, Tom, I've been doing some um, some writing on science fiction, and could you look at some of this? Uh, and I'd like... I think maybe we should run at quarter to three, and this is entirely Bruce's thinking, by the way. He gets most, you know, 99% of the credit for this. He said to me, I think we should do like something called Starship Week. And I sort of thought, well, that's a little silly, but let me see what Bruce has written. And as I was reading some of the stuff that he had written, some of his early drafts, I immediately was sold. I was like, yeah, let's do a Starship Week. And in fact, Starship Week became Starship Weeks because you cannot fit in one week all of the stuff that we had to say about science fiction. It was basically science fiction in general. Starship just makes a better hook. Uh, we had some other contributors. We did. I, I really loved some of what we posted. So Bruce wrote some articles. We had some great stuff on uh, some people would pick a spaceship of the day, and they would write why they liked that spaceship and what it meant to them. And a lot of this writing had to do with people reflecting on their childhood experiences of these genres and what it meant to them as an adult. Uh, and Bruce is particularly good at articulating this sort of thing. So I would encourage you to look for uh, some of his articles. And specifically, the article that he uses that, he, that closes out Starship Week, the very last one that he wrote, which was actually the one he, he suggested starting with this, but I sort of felt like it was better as a, as a payoff. Um, because in his final article... He talks about the difference between fantasy and science fiction. And he describes fantasy as kind of inherently uh, childish. And he doesn't mean that to denigrate it. He means that in a descriptive word. Uh, He says that a lot of fantasy is, and this is the word that he used, is coming of age stuff. You know, there's this kind of childhood dreaming about fantasy, about uh, power fantasies. Like a lot of fantasy is something along the lines of, what if I have... Uh, a, a destiny to be the the savior of the world. Uh, you know, what if I'm the only one who can pull the sword out of the stone? What if what if I found a ring so powerful that I became the most important person in the world? Um, and a lot of fantasy is that is imagining your place at the center of this this fantastical universe. Now contrast that with science fiction. Bruce described science fiction as, and I will quote here. Challenging the notions of what is possible. And I feel that a key word of that, the, the, the key word there is the word possible. And there's a sense of, of possibility in science fiction that doesn't exist w- with fantasy. Even the words, by the way, of these genres, science fiction and fantasy, even the words bring forward this this difference, this important difference. You know, the word fantasy has the connotation of something whimsical, 
something that's not real, something meaningless, even something insubstantial. But science fiction has in it the word science, and that's the exact opposite of whimsical or unreal or meaningless. You know, science. Uh, and I, I feel that when we talk about these concepts, uh, that how they find their ways into games, uh, I, I wanted to talk with Paul Boyer at Stardock, somebody making a science fiction game, about does this translate into anything uniquely in terms of gameplay? You know, Bruce, Bruce, again, to refer to Bruce's final article, he talked about, he described science fiction as you're looking out and you just have to find out what might be out there. Uh, so, can this be translated into games? So we'll talk to Paul about that. But, but first, again, I, I wanted to do a, a brief segue. I was at a presentation for a science fiction game recently, and I don't want to call out the game because I don't, I don't mean to insult the person who said this. Uh, but I found it very telling that when this fella got up in front of a room full of us press guys, and he was describing to us his inspirations. And to be fair, he was in charge of the lore, so, you know, what is he going to say? He, was, he couldn't really talk about gameplay systems, but, but when he wanted to talk about what his inspirations were for this game, he listed three things. He listed Star Wars, Aliens, and Serenity. You know, if he had actually included in that list Star Trek, my eyes would have rolled out of my head. Because for a, a lot of developers, you know, sci-fi just means the popular stuff. And again, to be fair, this guy was talking about a new game. He's he's selling a product. You know, he's 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 wanting to make something the most people will play, and that's kind of his job. He's got to do that. So he just mentions the most popular science fiction. You know, there's nothing bold in there. Nobody who is selling a game is going to get up in front of a bunch of press dudes and say, "Hey, our inspirations were Moon, 2001, and Under the Skin." You know, Under the Skin, by the way, a recent sci-fi movie. Absolutely mind-blowing and absolutely sci-fi. Um, so, you know, what, what are you going to say when you're, when you're selling your game? Uh, but, but something that I feel is important, when he mentioned these, and I don't want to just call out his game. This is true of a lot of games that claim uh, influences in, in science fiction. He's mentioning, you know, Star Wars, Aliens, Serenity. Um, those are not just visuals. You know, Star Wars is a family drama. Aliens is a Vietnam allegory. Serenity, I don't know what Serenity is. I haven't seen it. Uh, it's a Western. <laughs> uh, it's Joss Whedon. Uh, whatever Serenity is, I'm sure it's something. Uh, Blade Runner is another example, by the way. I think of Blade Runner as the go-to example for how games a lot of times are creatively bankrupt for how they appropriate influences. Blade Runner, when somebody, when a, when a video game appropriates Blade Runner, and so many of them do it, just like so many of them appropriate aliens, uh, what they are appropriating is not the point of Blade Runner. It is simply the look of Blade Runner. You know, Sid Mead is the fellow who did the production design for, for Blade Runner. It's ingenious work, but when people talk about being influenced by Blade Runner, 99% of the time, they're talking about a rainy dystopia with that Los Angeles skyline. Um, they're talking about those spinners, those little hover, the flying car things. They're talking about Harrison Ford's trench coat. They're talking about the look of it, the production design, and they're completely ignoring the point of Blade Runner. Just like I feel when a lot of 
developers talk about appropriate, you know, their influence being Star Wars or Aliens. They're not talking about making a family drama. They're not talking about making a Vietnam allegory. They're talking about the look of it. You know, Sid Mead's production design in Blade Runner basically overwhelms for, for a lot of game developers the, the fantastic script, the point of the movie, which is about, you know, what does it mean to be human? What are our experiences? Blade Runner is very much about this existential dilemma of do I exist? Um, nobody appropriates that when they make a game. Nobody cares about that amazing script written by David Webb Peoples and Hampton Fancher. They just care about Sid Mead's production design. So what I want to talk to you now with, with Paul Boyer is what does it mean from a gameplay perspective when you are deciding to be science fiction? You're not fantasy. You're not historical. What does science fiction offer your game design that it wouldn't otherwise have? So uh, now I have some bad news. I do need to apologize to Paul for whatever reason. And I, I blame technology. Speaking of science fiction, I, I might have a rogue AI in one of these computers here. For whatever reason, 15 minutes of the podcast was lost. The first 15 minutes. <sighs> Search me if I know what's going on. You know what? Consider it an alpha. Uh, what, what Paul talked about in those first 15 minutes, uh, fortunately, I would rather lose that than any of the later stuff. He talked about the, the alpha that's currently running. Uh, if you're part of the early founders program, which costs a fair amount, but what you're buying is access to the alpha as well as all of the content down the road for Galactic Civilizations 3. If you buy into that right now, it's pretty expensive, um, you can play the alpha. He also talked about the limitations of the alpha. There, there's very little there. They basically just want some of the early adopters who are fanatical about it to just get, get banging on it early on. Uh, he mentioned that a more conventional beta will be along shortly where you just pay the normal cost of the game and you get access to the beta. Uh, and then we segued to the conversation about um, the specifics of science fiction. And one of the things that I asked him was, uh, taking a devil's advocate stance, hey, if you're making a science fiction game, it doesn't make a difference. It just means that instead of having an army, you have a fleet. And we start talking a bit about what does having spaceships let you do that you can't do if you've just got... Um, you know, orcs and elves and crossbowmen and pikemen. Uh, so we'll pick up uh, in the middle of that part of the conversation. Uh, and apologies again to losing the first part of the, the podcast to you, the listener, and, and to Paul. Uh, and by the way, uh, you will know which one is Paul during the conversation because he's the one who uh, doesn't sound like me. I don't know if this is gauche, but I want to recommend that you guys steal from another game. Um, we don't steal, but we, <laughs> oh, excuse me, we've been known to be inspired by... <laughs> uh, have you played a game called, uh, and I can't think of the developer's name, I believe they're French. Uh, there's a sci-fi game called Endless Legend? No. Yes. In, Endless Space. Endless Space. They're, yes, they're there is a game called Endless Space, and I, yes, have played that. And, and I, I love what they do. It's that similar approach to Gal Civ, where you're just watching the battles. You know, yeah. you've made these ships, and you're watching the cool graphics of the ships do things, but they have this system of every battle's divided into, I think it's three phases, and each phase you play one card. And as you're playing the game, and the cards aren't physically cards, of course, it's just yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. they use that conceit. So each phase you can play one tactic represented by yeah. a card, and then the other side plays a tactic, and it matches the cards. And the cards interact in different ways, and they affect how that stage of the battle unfolds. Um, 
it, it reminds me of a lot of uh, like the way that a lot of board games do yeah. tactical battles. Like, okay, I'm going to do this, and you play that. Okay, let's go to phase two for the closer range. I just love their combination of sit back and watch the spectacle, but still be a little bit involved without doing that thing you're talking about. I move one square to yes. stay out of the range, and I drink the potion, so you can't touch me. Uh, I love the, the the balance that they struck. Uh, for how to do tactical combat in a sci-fi game, so I'm glad to know you guys. I will. I will say we are not stealing that. Um, as a matter of fact, we actually thought about doing that. Um, that was like in the original original design doc mm-hmm. for Galsif Three that Brad made, like whatever four years ago before I took over. Um, and one of the things we are working with is not that, but is will appeal to the people who like that. Let me Very put it nice. that way. <laughs> okay. So yeah, we have we definitely want the some involvement, but the big problem is not even so much stopping the cheese and keeping the battle, but the problem is in Galsiv, especially in Galsiv 3, you know, we what we chose to go 64 bits so we could have these giant maps. Mm-hmm. We're going to have gigantic maps like bigger than Gauss of two, like twice the size of Gauss of two, mm-hmm. and you will be able to play. And you could have a late game when you're it's you versus another race the same size as you on the other owns the other side of the galaxy. You could have fifty battles take place in a turn. Mm-hmm. And if you had to micromanage those, you would go crazy. Right. So, so the point, what the the balancing point for us is always how much interaction can we give a player? The player before it becomes tedious. Also, how good can the AI be at those interactions if I want to auto-resolve, which is something that most games that aren't at this scale don't have to really worry about. Because late, if you feel, I will never win unless I manage this battle perfectly, right? then you will feel like you have to do every one of those battles every turn and you will go mad. So so our whole goal is to make sure that you feel it's good, but you know, late game it's like, well I'm just gonna make sure my death fleet goes over there and you know and then I know I'm gonna win. I don't want to deal with it. Right? You know, so we have to balance that. But we will definitely there will be a lot more interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I definitely want to talk about some of these large maps, but first you mentioned something earlier I want to touch on. Uh shipbuilding. Um Shipbuilding. Uh, how can I phrase this in the the? Drives you crazy? No, no. What? You, no. Okay. Oh, so you're pro no, I shipbuilding. To, I know you were on three moves ahead with. Uh, I, think, I forgot who the two. It's Troy and Rob. At any rate, you were on three moves ahead recently. And and those guys, I was like, why are they complaining about shipbuilding? Who doesn't love shipbuilding? And and you gave them far too much credence. It's only weird little corners of the internet. <laughs> About shipbuilding, and here, by the way, I'm going to completely abandon They're my very phone. vocal. I know weird they, little they, quarters of the internet. Some, yeah. People's certain people who are vocal should be loudly ignored. Um, so, so I, I I'm going to abandon this whole idea of playing devil's advocate because I can't do it here. Um, okay, well that's because I love the shipbuilding. So I, I do too. So shipbuilding. I when I think of what's unique to sci-fi, like if you add shipbuild, if you add unit creation to even a fantasy game, you know, you mentioned Fallen Enchantress. I love that it's in Fallen Enchantress, and at least there. It's like playing an MMO and you're equipping your paper doll. You know, you're, you're, you're yeah. equipping character with, with inventory. And I don't think of that as unit design so much as RPG trappings. Yeah. And that, that works fine in fantasy if you're going to do fantasy that way. But when we're talking about the scale of armies, uh, 
I, I don't know that it works as well. When we're talking about creating a unit, you know, creating like a catapult or a tank or something, when you're using fantasy or history, I don't think it works well. And, and in sci-fi, in the concept of a spaceship, of putting a generator in, which allows me to have these lasers, and whoops, if I have so many lasers, my shields are going to be weak, so let me take off these two lasers and give it more shields. You know, that is unique to sci-fi. And you can cheat that, and if you want to make some goofy tank development thing in a contemporary war game, that's fine, go ahead. Yeah. But it's so uniquely suited to sci-fi that shipbuilding, to me, seems like a crucial it seems like a core value of sci-fi that you can't have in fantasy or or history uh, strategy yeah. games the weird thing about the ship design and just the ship building is and i'm sure brad has probably told you this story at some point but the the original ship design was essentially kind of like i mean in galsiv uh galsiv was too it was like okay you, you know i want to put this weapon on so it was exactly what you were saying it was strictly I put this thing on. It didn't affect the ship. It didn't look different. It was literally just a stat-changing device. Mm-hmm. Um, in Galsiv 2, we were like, well, what if we made it so you can put the weapons on and you can see them? Yep. And so that was great. And then we were playing around with a very early version of the ship designer, and uh, the lead developer at the time put on started attaching hulls to hulls or, you know, essentially a ship to a ship to a ship. And he's like, this is kind of cool. And I'm like, yeah, that does look neat. Wouldn't it be neat if we let people put on wings and stuff? And then we were like, okay. All right. So, so we came up with that idea. But then it, there was this huge argument of, well, we have to limit how many wings it can have. And we have to do this and we have to do that because people will be able to make ugly things. <laughs> and, and it was like, well, how do we make sure it looks good? How do we make sure it looks good? And then essentially we just decide, you know what? You can't, and this is Derek quoted, I don't know if he came up with this or quoted it, but you can't make awesome things without the ability to make ugly things. Right. And that ship designer kind of exploded. I mean, it's, and we added to it and added and refined it a little in, in expansions. Um, but it just became it was kind of my baby so i'm very proud of it i love that thing i've spent more hours in it than i would like to say anybody but i'm sure there's some fans <laughs> out there the guys who are playing 680 turns yeah. of the galsiv 3 oh no album. i just one of these days just for kicks google galsiv 3 ship designer on youtube and there's just stuff that blows my mind like mm-hmm. amoebas and walking robot i i counter animating because there was only one animation control and you and then people have this stuff that i couldn't even figure out how they do mm-hmm. anyways um so yeah ship design essentially turned into this great thing but once again half the answer the reason why it's become a trope or become such a standard is first off people like it people and it's very believable you don't you know it's like i, I put this gun on and honestly in most of these games that does that that particular gun really doesn't do anything other than sit there mm-hmm. i put this life support thing on. i put this shield generator on does nothing but sit there sit there but you feel like you made a decision and it allows you to like i will start galsif 2 and i'll go well, you know what screw you guys and your you know i'm talking about and your your standard ships i'm gonna take a cargo hull and put two hyperdrives on it and a survey module and and like 15 life supports and set it out and start raking in the cash you know and you feel like it lets the player 
feel like they're being smart and they're being clever and they can do what they want. It makes the AI's life a living hell, but that's Brad's problem. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, so I really like that. And a lot of it, technically, uh, the reason why I think it's so acceptable and so expected is because in spaceships, it's rigid bodies. You can... You can put five – this is kind of exactly our old example of, I put this hull in this hull, and for some reason it looks good. And so now it's like you can make interesting parts, and you put those together, and now you've created this awesome-looking ship, and you feel all proud of yourself. And then you put on the same three active components that were in the standard default ship, but you don't care because you're going to use your ship. You're going to use your crazy – pointy ship or whatever and that's what is so fun and when you see your ships flying into big star warsy battles and blowing up it's really rewarding and fun and and that is i think why at least in galsiv uh ship design has become kind of a monster of a i mean a kind of its own thing uh, that said in defense of the three moves ahead guys it is a very valid point that even I, like after I've made the th- my awesome ships a thousand times, mm-hmm. I won't redesign those ships. I'll just grab those ships and slap on two new lasers and send them out. And so we need to make sure that players who don't want to spend time in the ship designer plus in multiplayer, you definitely don't want to, hey, well, sorry, Tom. I'm going to go design the ship right. for a half hour. Then we'll do the next turn. So... um we need the ability to really quickly make ships. We also need the ability for the AI to provide the player with good, usable, smart ships. But we'll never be able to make as smart ships as players will because they can look around them and go, that guy has this and that guy has this, but if I do this and this and this, I can kill both of them. You know, And that is what is so uh fun about ship design well so okay so let me table I, I, I still have written here maps so i want to talk about that in a second but to, to touch on what you just said there um you guys are kind of creating your own when, when you say in multiplayer yeah so if you if you can make your own ships if you can break the system you know and make these cool crazy things that you're not provided with by default because I can't, I've never seen a game with ship building or unit customization that didn't let guys like the three moves ahead guys who don't want to make their own ships that didn't provide them with with units. You know, when you play Alpha Centauri, you don't you never have to use the unit creation screen because it's always going to give you stuff to play with. So whining about I don't want to make my ships, you never have to. I've never seen a game that forces you to build the stuff. It gives you stuff to play with. Well, I now, think that in Galsiv 2, it was a li- I mean, not to really distract you, but in Galsiv 2, it might maybe felt a little too much like you felt you needed to. Be, um, whereas Galsiv 3, we're trying to make sure that you don't you don't you could just feel not like touch it. So you, you, if you don't want to touch it, you don't have to. Right, right. However, I will always touch it, and I want, every, I want as many people as possible to spend waste hours and hours and hours. Well, that's where I feel like if you're playing a sci-fi game and you're not building a ship, then forget it. Go play something with elves. You know, you don't yeah. you never build elves and orcs. I just, again, I feel that's a, that's a huge, unique selling point for sci-fi. Well, a lot of modders will also want, I want to play Star Wars or whatever, Star right, Trek. Right. They'll build all their Star Trek ships and then they'll never do it. They'll never modify the ships again. Right. But they they will spend, you know, a month making custom ships. And and we want them to have the ability, but we also want them to then be able to take those ships and allow the AI to equip them for them, and they won't have to touch them again if they right, want. Right, right. Uh, so, well, he, here then is a, is a problem that you guys have introduced, and I'm blaming you 
Okay. Paul Boyer and, and the developers of, of Galsip, if you don't have multiplayer in a game, then that allows you as the developer don't have to worry about there, there's a distinction between oh, tuning and balance tuning is and i heard this once in a, in a talk given by one of the uh the the developers on halo and he was talking about how when they made halo one of the one of the unique selling points of halo when it first came out was this cool weapon system they had you know different weapons had different personality they performed in different ways but halo there was a single player game and then there was a hugely competitive multiplayer game and the language he used for the single player game was the language of tuning you know making sure that each weapon felt different and if one of them didn't feel different they could just tune it a little bit and, and you would tune this to make something change a bit. Um, but then when it came to multiplayer, the language he had to use was balancing, making sure that everything was fair, that one guy couldn't take the one weapon and then beat all the other weapons. You know, every weapon had to be created and balanced with every other weapon. So in single player, you can do tuning. In multiplayer, it's a slightly different but way more important concept of balancing. When you guys add multiplayer to Gal Civ, it's no longer a matter of just tuning. It's also a matter of balancing. So the whole shipbuilding system, which I should in single player, I could be able, to, I, I should be allowed to break the game if I want. Yeah. Um, and that, and you guys can tune it that way. You can say, hey Tom, if you want to be, if you want to be a super exploitative shipbuilding guy and you want to do some crazy thing on the tech tree to try to break the game, and if maybe the AI doesn't see it coming, or you you introduce it into a unique situation where the AI hasn't developed missile anti missile technology, you know. That's fine. Break the game. It's single player. Multiplayer, you can't allow that in a way. So you guys have made for yourselves a whole new set of problems I'm sure you're aware of by introducing multiplayer, yes? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And that, now, yeah, that on. said, um, we are doing multiplayer because people have asked for multiplayer forever. Right. Um, it is a turn-based game. It's not a Twitch-based kind of game. It's not StarCraft. Mm-hmm. You know, it, so it's a much slower game. There's a much smaller multiplayer audience. Um, but we really want to support it. But our entire goal for multiplayer is to make sure it feels as much like the single-player game as possible. If I could ma- wave a magic wand and make everybody in the world do what I want... I would say only play cooperative. <laughs> I don't want, I want you guys, I want it to be you and your friends against the AI. Uh-huh. You know, I want that because that will feel like Galsip. That'll feel like, oh, we outsmarted the Drenjin and took over the galaxy together. Wasn't that awesome? Right. If it becomes literally like a balancing, I can say that we will balance as much as possible, you know, but because of ship design, balancing will be incredibly right. difficult. Sure. Um, and if if it comes down to we have this awesome feature we want to put in, but if somebody figures out a way to exploit it in this way, we have to nerf it, we will just let it break the game to some degree. Um, one of the things that we um, that I'm thinking about doing is essentially making it so there's an option in multiplayer to turn off ship design, and then you can only oh, sure. use... Right. You know, that way, for the hardcore people who want a balanced experience, we can provide them with one. Mm-hmm. But for the people who are like, me and my, me and Jesse want to take over the galaxy, and it's going to be a two-week-long game, and we're going to tell epic stories about how, our, how awesome we were, <laughs> that... That is the experience that I want people to have. I don't think... I think the people who want to just play 
space chess um, will probably feel have more fun playing a real time game or whatever. We, we can't we can't push for that. We we're, we will balance it, but our primary focus is making it making the single player game awesome and making the multiplayer game as close to that awesomeness as possible. Sure. I love that you guys are doing that just because I know how many people have, have clamored for multiplayer for so long. But I also hate that I, I sort of feel like, and I know this is something you guys deal with, I, I feel like you're, you, it's going to take so I mean, so much work is going to have to be done to make the multiplayer. I, I wish that you guys would, again, just say, screw multiplayer, just do a single-player game. I understand well, why you're not. We, I think it's great. We that- have thought of it and, and mm-hmm. considered it, and we had to make a decision at one point, you know, um, say... You can't. You have to build the infrastructure right to support multiplayer properly. And you know, this is not a. We're not using Unreal as we're writing. You know, we have our own engine and everything. So we have to do all this stuff, starting from the minute we decide to do multiplayer. Everything has to, you know, work with that. Mm-hmm. So we had to make the decision. Um, you know, for a long time we, I wasn't, I didn't even think we were going to announce it because I was more like, let's make sure it works and it's good and everybody likes it. Um, before, and then we'll say, oh, by the way, right, here's multiplayer. <laughs> and I thought that would have been awesome, but for some reason, marketing wanted to announce it. <laughs> you know, because the truth is, it is a big, and nowadays it's a big bullet point, and there's a yeah. lot of pressure to have it. Yeah. And what's sad is. The, people, the num- amount of people who play it is minuscule in comparison to the amount of people who play a single player. Yep. Yep. This is a lot different than, say, like you know, a, a shooter or something, where the heart of the game is multiplayer. The, the heart of Galsiv is is just the the sandbox. You know, that's you spend months of time in the sandbox. Paul, I want to lament to you about something that I feel like I'm not going to get because you guys are doing multiplayer. Uh, and and this was in I think it was there was something like this in Fallen Enchantress and in talking to Derek at one point he explained to me why they were removing it uh, and I forgot what his excuse I forgot, I'm sure I forgot I what just about whatever it was too. well maybe I mean I don't know I think maybe a lot of people didn't like this and they felt like it broke the game but I felt again it was an example of this is something you can do in a single player game that is going to be problematic in multiplayer it's like ship building but not quite it was this idea in Galsiv 2 I imagine it was 1 there was a resource called influence I believe that's what it was called and it, it was a you just accrued it you would get you know a thousand influence and you would get it by making I don't know embassies or whatever and influence just sat there until I opened the diplomacy screen and I could go to another race and I could say hey you know, I need uh, a thousand credits, uh, and I wouldn't have anything to offer them except this influence resource that did nothing other than push up that little slider when I would offer a diplomatic uh, option, like, hey, go to war, or hey, be friends yeah. with me, or leave me alone. And influence, which, which is a, a resource I created to make the AI players do what I wanted. You know, it was basically saying, here is your, your influence, here's your charisma, here's your diplomatic skill. This resource is a pile of stuff you spend to do things in diplomacy you couldn't otherwise do, that the AI would think, no, that's not fair. Um, and I love that that concept, that concept that, you know, if I'm the humans who are really good at diplomacy, yeah, yeah. I earn more influence. 
Now, you can't do that in multiplayer because you and I can't be playing a game and I can't open up my diplomacy screen and say, hey, Paul, stop attacking me. And you're going to be like, no, I'm going to win the game. And then I just shove a pile of influence into the screen and you have to stop attacking me. Yeah. Multiplayer, that won't work. So am I going to miss out on something like that in Galsiv 3? Uh, no. There, we will have something like that as to how it will uh, – there's a whole mess of things that are problematic in – in multiplayer right. along the lines of diplomacy mm-hmm. because I can't uh, – I mean, it's it's exactly that thing. It's, what is the value of this to the AI? The AI goes, oh, it, I can get this much money for this. If I go to you and say – or actually more, one of the best examples is um, – Oh, I don't even know. There's there's the United Planets, there's diplomacy, there's trade. All these things that are AI-based logic. Our goal is to uh, kind of is to make those work as good as possible in multiplayer. Um, we don't have answers to all the problems yet, but we're working on it. Sure. Um, but but like I said, this goes back to my original point. We want multiplayer to play as much like uh, single player as possible. We will not remove anything from multiplayer without a lot of uh, hemming and hawing. And in some cases, like because we want people to play co-op, maybe we can essentially make those things work in co-op mode, or mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to promise any features, but th- those are the types of things that we're willing to, to consider. I have actually several ideas on how to kind of make them have value to the player, to, to real people, um, but uh, nothing I want to Sure. admit to yet so I, I like the fact that you're thinking about those things. oh yeah no that's one of the very first problems because i'm you know writing this design doc and i'm like hey this will be awesome oh how will that work in multiplayer oh it <laughs> <Right>. won't <laughs> that won't work at all in multiplayer so yeah it's definitely on our minds all right here's something uh, i imagine this might give you some fits in multiplayer uh and again before we get to maps uh, since we're talking about diplomacy um when you, of course, have a historical game, you make one of the factions like America or Persia or China. Or when you're doing fantasy games, you have the elves and the orcs and the uh, halflings, whatever. Uh, or when you're doing a sci-fi game, what, you pretty much just do whatever you want, right? Tell me about well, uh, this idea of alien. A, dip- yeah, we have a lore at this point, so we oh, I guess, yeah, do like, yeah. whatever we want. But because it's science fiction, go back to our future, you know, looking forward thing is you could just we can just go, oh, hey, we thought of this whole new race that has all these new interesting gameplay dynamics, and you just hadn't met them yet. Or in a lot <laughs> of cases, there are a lot of actual races in the lore that have never been in the game, and we can essentially then tie those two cool game features and introduce them. And the Gauss of Three, we're introducing the Iridium, which will be a very uh, crazy. I don't want to say capitalist, but they're a big economic engine um, system, mm-hmm. and they're going to kind of take the place of a couple of the older races because a couple races got killed during the last war. And so, but we come in, they have a whole new kind of way of going with that. And I think people have a lot of fun playing with that. There are other races that we will eventually probably introduce in DLC or expansions or whatever that will add even more. So, um, but like, so you can literally just go, Oh, by the way, this planet has this whole new system of thought, this whole new system of 
everything, all their engineering. All I have one race I want to do an expansion where all of their ships are made out of asteroids that have just been mined and engines put on them. I like that. You know, yeah. I mean, things like that. It's like <laughs> you can just come up with these really cool ideas and go, well, why not do that? And no reason. Right, because right. you know we don't have time. That's really the limit. Is do we have time to do that? And <laughs> so, and I think that's kind of a theme in what sci-fi offers you is that you can break out of the normal expectation. Literally, the sky's the limit. You know, as far out as you want to push your imagination into the universe, yeah. the universe is infinite. It's you're going to find something out there. You know, you're, you're going to find everything out there eventually. So whatever you can think of, there's got to be a place where it fits. Yeah. Yeah, limit limitless possibilities, or or as uh, what's his name, uh, as Douglas Adams says, is an infinite universe. Everything exists. Very good. Oh. You know, it literally, it's like there is literally a planet where mattresses <laughs> swim around. You know, so so that it allows us to. I mean, that might be pushing it, but yeah, it allows us to really, uh, as long as. But like I said, we are a little hard sci-fi, so we have to give an explanation for it. So what you're saying is no faction based entirely on mattresses. Um, not an official Stardock faction. You, I am. I wouldn't be surprised if a modder or if somebody posts one that you can then download and play as the mattress people. Yeah. All right. So finally, let's touch on maps. And now I'm going to go back to my uh, devil's advocate. I'm gonna I'm gonna complain about sci-fi. Terrain in space is boring. Sure, yeah, you can just have like a, an, you know, you put an asteroid field or a nebula or whatever, but there's none of this cool sense of exploration. You know, when I discover in a land-based game, oh, here's the fertile territory and there's there's sheep on this tile and then there's some gold on these mountains over here and, you know, I, I've discovered this really cool valley and there's this sense of exploration and discovery, but in space... Oh, yawn, another star with a planet on it. Uh, oh, they put an asteroid belt here that I have to go around. Space terrain is boring. Paul Boyer, what do you have to say to someone who says that? I will say um, one of the primary reasons we are we abstract the gameplay board, and it's not, you know, people are like, well, shouldn't Earth rotate around the sun? And shouldn't the sun, planet be really small? And you'll actually see these games that come out that do that, where they have, you know, space lanes to get to things and it does simplify cleans things up but the problem with that is now you've established a realistic scale and there's only so much you can do in space which is pretty much infinitely empty mm-hmm. so um by establishing a abstracted scale you know like our your ship is in fact the size of the sun too bad, you know. Just that's that's how it is. It allows us to make our terrain uh, more interesting. Um, we're going to have black holes, and the black holes will take up large swaths of the top. We have we're going to have uh, lots of different nebulas, and those nebulas will have different effects and different things in them, mm-hmm. and different resources in them, and we'll have uh, s- storms and interstellar rifts and stuff like that. But that said, we are going, and we're going to make those things as sexy as we possibly can because screenshots are gold, but they have to be fun. <laughs> they have to be, they have to add to the game. That said, we don't want you to go, oh, the only reason for this terrain is to go around it, or the only reason for this terrain is to slow me down. We want those things to add to multiple effects and for you to actually be able to go, ooh, you know, we want you to be able to pull the, 
the the Captain Kirk Star Trek Two and lure your enemy into this gas cloud where their sensors won't be good, and then you can kill them. You know, things like that. We want to add uh, the ability for players to do that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, space is mostly empty. There will still be large swaths of space. And one of the things GalCiv 2, GalCiv 1, I think GalCiv for OS 2 didn't have this, but was range. We actually had to have this concept of range. And most science fiction games don't have it. Most turn-based strategy games don't have it. And that is because on a planet-based one, the range is limited by the continent or the the shape of the map or ah, right. whatever. Whereas in, in space, you can literally just go, I'm going to go that way. And if we, you don't have reins, you can go see the whole galaxy in the first 50 turns or whatever, mm-hmm. first 20 turns, depending on the size of the map. We, we want you to the, – the whole concept of range is you have to expand, get another planet before you can go too much further. And then we do give you technologies that can boost that, but they're way up the tree, and it costs time and money. And this essentially allows for the galaxy to kind of come alive, and then you do stumble upon things. And those things, even if it is just a planet – Orbiting a thing, it's like, oh crap! It's a planet orbiting a thing next to an asteroid with three giant ass star bases and these giant fleets of ships there, or this pirate base, or this space monster, or whatever. No space monsters yet, so sorry, didn't mean to mention. Anyway, so those types of things you you can come across and you get that ooh moment, and that's the thing that we want. It's not even just that it's a pretty thing. Because the truth is, even in a turn-based game, in a map-based game, there's a, you run out of the pretty things after a while. You've seen them all. Um, you're going to run out of those in our game, too. But what we want is when you get there, you to be being blown away by what is happening there. Or, oh my god, that's an awesome Class 27 planet that no one has found. And it took me, because it's way outside of everybody's range, and you get this big feel of of discovery of that exploration and discovery and that is something that we get because we have this range and everybody who i've had review the design is always like why do you need range why do you need range and i've always had to kind of fight and defend it but this question essentially feeds right into that it brings us into that it it forces it 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 gives you this sense of discovery that otherwise you would not have. Yeah. And that goes into the whole terrain thing. Well, I sort of feel like when you talk about finding that Class 27 planet, that's something you get by virtue of space being so empty. I mean, the, the fact that in, in a land-based thing, you know, every tile is something. You know, yes. every tile is going to be, okay, well, here's a mountain, here's a desert, here's a forest. In space, it's like nothing, 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 nothing. Something! Whoa, look how cool that something is! You know, yeah. the fact that that's something, that the spikes are a little bit higher... Because the normal is just a flat line. There's nothing out there. So I feel like that gives you... Uh, you can also... I mean, that is actually a, an incredibly good point. That's... that's uh, I really should have thought of. But yeah, essentially that sense of discovery is is great is greater because of the lack of those well, special but, things. They're special. You right. get that one second of fun when you find that thing. And the, the, uh, the other thing that is great about that is that... Because it's space, you are less obligated to micromanage every unit, and you can literally say, you go over here, you go over here, you go over here, you go over here, and then you can be doing 
managing your planet, and then you can set up a governor to manage this planet, and you can essentially have an empire of 50 planets and a 1,000 ships and still play the game. Whereas when you have a 1,000 units in a turn-based game, which most of them would never actually let you do, you're, you're going crazy at 100 units or 50 units because you're because you are like oh well oh man he didn't go the right way there's a he stumbled upon this mountain he did right. he doesn't know to go around the mountain you know whereas you can just say i know there's a planet out there go to that planet and tell me if you see anybody so i can manage you but otherwise leave me alone and that's a lot harder to do in a terrain based game right well the the model i think paul for that that sense of discovery that emptiness uh even for for a lot of the combat the model is of course uh naval exploration and combat you know oh, yeah. is the space is the ocean and the planets are islands um and that fleets are of course literally fleets uh like i'm i'm keenly aware in certain sci-fi games i think of a fantastic game called sins of the solar empire that even though I've it's a heard of that game yeah i think you might be very familiar <laughs> with it uh even though their their representation of space is very node based and it yeah. lets them say okay this node has this personality this node has that personality uh just their whole fleet model and the way you move around in the nodes it's very very naval it's very much about and even range you know jumping from an island to an island you know in, it, yeah. in naval combat in the, the pacific theater in world war ii where you fought had to do with what islands you occupied you know how how far could you project force and that's that sense of range that you're talking about uh, which I actually think of that as going back to Master of Orion. You know, oh, I yeah. remember in Master of Orion, oh, I really want to go out there, but I can't until I get my range. I think they even couched well, that in Well, I don't know. I think we had that in Galsif for OS2 before. Oh, did that date Master of Orion? <laughs> it does predate, not by much, nice. but it does. Anyway, we, we get a lot of grief. I mean, Brad, it's, it's always like a sore point for Brad. He's like, well, it was just a rip off of Master of Orion. He's like, ah, no! I made it first! You know, I mean, of course the game has advanced quite a bit in 20 years. So, it's obviously, Master of Orion was a more polished uh, experience. I mean, that's why it's so popular and people love it. But, but still, that idea of range, which I think is hugely important, uh, th- that gives the map shape, you know, whereas otherwise it wouldn't have shape. And, uh, because it's space. Because it's space, yep. exactly. So range and, and borders, by the way. I mean, you yeah. guys were huge as far as introducing borders, and, and specifically um, the the way that you do border control with the star bases, which I always loved in Calciv with those configurable star bases um you know you can only do so much and you see this in fallen enchanters with a fort you build yeah. a fort and okay you put I, I forget what it is but you can put stables in the fort yeah, yeah. maybe you put uh, I, I don't know an armory or, or whatever but a star base you know you stick this on and you put this kind of generator and you put these kind of weapons and this kind of like trading interport thing in it um like you had this great idea of of changing the shape and the style of the map with these crazy modular star bases. And that seemed to me a, a, a uniquely sci-fi luxury that was afforded the game. Yeah, as a matter of fact, a, a very often I would ask for, can, you know, can we turn essentially the forts... The, I, I essentially wanted the forts in, Gal, in FE to essentially be star bases. It's like, we need... There's no way to push your... Your area of your, your control, and of course, it's a completely different game. The the zone of control in Galciv is huge because it's space; it has to be. It's like I need to be able to reach this other planet, and that planet is maybe a long way away. Um, in in Elemental or whatever, you could have a you know a city three tiles away, you know, well, right. three tiles, six tiles away, and so 
range is a whole different animal, but I always kind of, I, I always missed star bases, and I think Force took it a little bit that way, but they were never sure. they were never as alive as star bases are, especially because star bases have different specializations and different. You know, and and right. we're using them for even more in Galaxy Three. You'll do your mining through star bases. You'll do your resource tapping through star bases. You'll do your cultural influence and your military support and your economic support all through different types of star bases. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let me then ask you about something else. So, one of the uh, actually, let me put it this way: um, in Star Wars, uh, so let's see, it's uh, in Empire Strikes Back. Where does Luke go to meet Yoda? I'm going to quiz you here. Really? Really? Yep. yep. No, go ahead. Let's see if you can answer it. Duntween? Oh, oh, come on. Come on, Paul. It does begin oh. with a D. But do you Think about it. Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, but, but but can you say the full place that he's told to go? He's told... It, I'm, it's probably... Uh, I'm trying to lead oh, you into wow, saying... Oh, wow, wow. Well, look, what I'm trying to lead oh. you into saying is Dagobah's system. Dagobah system, yes. Now, I, oh, he says go to the Dagobah system, find Yoda. Right, but yeah, here's yeah, my yeah. question to you: Isn't Dagobah the name of a planet? And so, isn't a system? Yes. You name a system after a star. Here's just another reason that Star Wars is stupid. <laughs> a system is named after a star, not a planet. No, so, see that. Am I wrong? Is, it is a story being written to evoke emotions in people. No, 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 no. Paul, <laughs> it's because it's because George Lucas is an idiot. That's what I'm getting at here. So here, I, I, that's just something that I've been. Or well, at least with it didn't it? No, actually, uh, Endor is the same. Endor, by the way, is uh, the planet. The moon. the moon is where they're fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to the third moon of it. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. If you're listening, do not get your astrophysics knowledge from Star Wars. That's the point I'm trying to make yeah. here. Because fact, we actually uh, go through and, and I mean, all of our systems are named after, you know, uh, the, the star. star. Right, as well it should be. Like, oh, this is a perk I didn't mention for the uh, the founders. Uh-huh. They get to name a star in the game and they get their name in the credits. And uh, so we get, we have this big list of things and you'll be playing the game, you'll come across, you know, uh, Collinsworth 1, 2, and 3, and Collinsworth 3 is great. And I know that Collinsworth is a, a user-defined name. And so right. uh, we, you know, so that's a, another little fun thing. But that is actually like a whole system you kind of have to put into. One of the things I want to do, you know, what I've always had a problem with naming uh, star bases. Oh, man, let me check. Because it's, I, there, yeah. it's a star base, economic star base, 1, 2, 7, 8, 4, 9. Right. <laughs> and you don't. Honestly, the player doesn't care once they're going, but it's so dead. It has no life to it. So um, one of the things we're going to do is make it so it will derive its name from the system it's in. It'll go, I'm Collinsworth, star, economic starbase Collinsworth 1. Well, what do you do then with starbases exactly- that are just out in the middle of space? They'll go to the nearest one, or we oh, can call whatever them system Deep, space, Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Seven, Deep Space uh-huh. Eight. So, I mean, we'll we'll have to come up with some rules for it. That's not... Fully implemented right now. They are Starbase One, Two, Three, Four. Well, well, but what I'm what I'm getting at though, and what you're touching on, is this idea that in a sci-fi game, you have this idea that there's a system and it has multiple planets around it. And do you therefore, how do you deal with the fact that if I find a planet, there's all these other planets that you guys have to deal with? Like I, I only find clusters of a few planets at a time, some of which might suck, some of which might be good. Maybe a sun only has one planet. Um, is, is that a hassle, or is that a unique selling point for sci-fi? 
Oh, I love it. I mean, it's actually great. It gives us way more control. You don't have to go, oh, this land is good for building on. You go, that planet, see that planet? You can build something there. Or that planet's dead. You, there's not like this whole explanation. In Galaxy 3, we actually have planets that you'll be able to mine as well, but you won't colonize them. Um, so, but essentially, yeah, the plant, and when you discover a system, that's like a treasure trove, even if it's bad. It's like it might have asteroids, which you can mine. It might have resources in it that you can use to build new ships and such. Um, so there's a lot of great stuff about that, but it makes life so much easier just to go, you are looking for planets, mm-hmm. period. Whereas, like, well, you're in, a, in a, a strategy game. It's like you're looking for fertile land, but you have to make sure it's the most fertile land and it's next to the best tile and the, where so whereas it's like oh hey i found a class 11 planet is that worth colonizing probably done you know there's not this search well let me walk a couple tiles around it and see if there's a better way to do this <laughs> you know okay. so it, we are however in this this planet management system we're introducing uh, adjacency which will kind of turn Planet management to a little more of a mini game, a quick mini game, which will hopefully make uh, uh, settling colonies and everything a, a lot more fun. So the adjacency, I remember you talking about this on the planet. Like if you put, yes, like the planets, like a, it's, a, I think you might have even said like a Tetrisy kind of thing. Like you're fitting together uh, adjacent developments yeah. to create combinatorial bonuses, right? Yeah, because right. those, you know, the continent shapes will determine what tiles are usable hmm. and. The, and you will, so there will always be these kind of weird shapes. And you'll go, right. well, this one has got a one, two, three. If I put a power plant here, I can put a research plant right. and a factory next to it, and they will get a bigger bonus from that power plant than they would if I put three research plants together. Or, you know, but there'll be these little combinations, but you'll be able to make those decisions rather quickly and do it in the initial planning of the city, of the planet and not have to come back and re-manage it over and over and over, which is what we're trying to avoid. I, I want to tell you about a game that, uh, gosh, when is this? Probably from the 90s, uh, it, that I loved so much. I've never done this before. I'd never done it before. I haven't done it since. That I actually wrote, I think it's the only one on the internet, uh, the fact for this game. There wow. was a sci-fi game called The Emperor of the Fading Suns, and it was based on a pre-existing um, f- uh, franchise. I think they were... Some tabletop games, maybe RPGs, I don't remember. But it, the idea was it was like medieval culture, but in sci-fi. And there was a, there was a papacy, and there was a, there was heres, her, heretical texts, technologies, um, and there were crusaders, and there was all this stuff. But one of the cool things they did in this game was they created a dramatic difference between the planet-side activity and then the space activity. And the space activity was very naval. You know, you had fleets, and you would have to convoy units around and escort the convoys. But then when you got to the planet, you would land on the planet. It was just like Civ, like you were moving yeah, units yeah, around. Yeah. Uh, and it was hugely ambitious for how it created this split between planet-side and space activity. Uh, and, and all the ways that it tied together things like space bombardment, or where yeah. you would drop your units from space onto the map. And there were even, nobody ever used them, but there were even like naval units, like water units, because some planets would have oceans and you would need ships to go out and fight so it was this hugely ambitious but ultimately kind of a nightmare gameplay wise distinction between planet side and space 
And I think of that as unique to sci-fi games. Um, and it sounds like you're playing with it a little bit with the, the grids, and that also is in Galsiv 2, I believe. Uh, well, the grids in Galsiv didn't have adjacency. There was bonuses. So yeah. you could literally just go in there and go bang, 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 and be done. But you would get a you pen, right, and, right. And you would get and, – and it really just determined, like, do I want to put a manufacturing improvement on this manufacturing bonus? Yes. Right. Like I have so, this many slots to play with. Yeah. That was pretty much it the was, So the only decision you ever had to make was I don't need another manufacturing planet or I don't need another farming thing, so I'll build a factory on this farm bonus. Right. That was really all – it was just class and bonuses. And so the decisions were not real decisions. And so – by adding adjacency, it adds this whole level of decision-making, but still keeps it really quick and easy to plan. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, we've had, you know, we've all thought about it, you know, making the world uh, round, and, <laughs> and, and, and how you spin the globe, and you put, put things on, and then when we do the invasions, you literally go on to the planet. And you, I mean, we all, everybody thinks this, oh, wouldn't it be great? I mean, there are people who have literally played Galsiv, went, oh, they should totally do this, and then mm-hmm. gone and made their own version of Galsiv or a game very similar to Galsiv where they do do it and almost every time it's like now you know why we didn't do that <laughs> you know and it's 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 painful because I as the person who was a fan of the game really and a player of the game coming in as a designer there I had like a whole phalanx of great ideas that I always thought would be awesome when playing the game that I immediately once I tackled them Realized, oh yeah, that's why you don't do that. Right. So, you know? two th- something you said. Uh, I just want to say to anyone making a game, this applies to you as well, Paul Boyer. Never, ever, ever make a spinning globe. I have never <laughs> seen a spinning globe interface that wasn't annoying because it only ever shows you half of what you should see. Yep. Never put a spinning globe in your freaking game. First of all, yep. I want to say that. Second of all, so what? What I want to hear you talk about then is. Uh, so it seems like in a in a sci-fi game that has planet side stuff and space stuff, you know, that's not just Alpha Centauri. Um, a lot of times, what's going to happen is when I want to take over a planet, I maybe build three space marines and I put them in a transport and I fly my fleet over to this planet and then I click a button and something happens. Maybe I get a little interface of explosions where those three space marines either translate into the planet being mine or not being mine. And suddenly it feels like something's happening under the hood, some die is being rolled somewhere that I don't see, and this crucial element of do I get this planet or not is is hands-off or it's too streamlined. Or yeah. So how do you strike a balance between that and something like Emperor of the Fading Suns where suddenly I'm having to play Civ for, for 30 minutes? Well, what, what the goal is right now, and, uh-huh. and it may change, but the goal is right now um, to make it Kind of like the fleet combat, where you have a certain number. Of, I mean, you have certain things you can um, assign when it happens. You can make a couple decisions instead of just going. I mean, even Galsiv, you could say, "I want to use bombardment," and I know that the side effects will be this. Whereas you'll be able to do a couple of things to kind of uh, better plan, and there'll be a set, you know, kind of more of a rock paper scissors element. You'll have to go to invade this planet. I need this thing. Okay. Uh, a transport will not be an all-purpose kill-all thing, or a technique of invasion will not work on every planet. And so we're going to add a little bit of that. But once again, we have to keep it very streamlined, very um, so very smart, and and something the AI can do well, because 
late game, lots of this is going to be happening. We we don't want people micromanaging it. But we also want people, we don't want the feeling you're saying right now where, uh, yeah, what happened? I don't know. You know, you want, you want, oh, I made the right decision to take that planet. You want to feel like you won that planet because you did something, not because you sent a ship there and it was magically yours. You know, it sounds like, it sounds like when, it, when I mentioned uh, Endless Space before, I guess one of the things I like about that idea of the cards is it. As a player, I'm making decisions. Yeah. And it sounds like you're asking for planetary combat to involve decisions yes. and not just load up Marines on a transport, click a button to then yeah. see if they take the planet. We're actually bringing the idea of these more discrete decisions all over the game. I mean, the the, the new tech tree, you literally is not – not, I mean, it's still linear, but there are specialization nodes. So you can say, I'm – you know, and we got a lot of grief in Galsiv – Two, and then we kind of refined it in in right. in Twilight, where it would be like lasers one, lasers two, lasers three. And what does lasers two do? Well, it costs less. It's a little lighter. <laughs> you know, what does lasers three do? Well, it costs less. It's a little <laughs> lighter. And then you get to lasers five, and you have a really light, really efficient laser. Right. And then you go to plasma, and now you get two more damage. <laughs> but it's big again, and you have to make it leader. Da, 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 da. Right. So what we've introduced is this nodal, the specialization system. So I research lasers. At the after I research lasers, I unlock three specializations. I get to pick one of those hmm. to research next. Once I've researched that, I go to plasma. So I can say I literally want lighter lasers. I research the low mass lasers or whatever we're calling it. Mm-hmm. Then now you can go ahead and just go straight to plasma. Right, and then when you're done with plasma, say you want them to be lighter, and there's going to be more than just lighter, cheaper. But those are the core ones. You always want it lighter, cheaper, and, and like a lot of the weapons are longer range or or a better shield penetration, whatever. So you go up, and then by the end of the time you get to that black hole, you get to the doom ray. You've you're a thousand, a hundred turns in, depending on whatever your setup is. You're you know five hundred turns in the game. You got Doom Ray, but you or you were in a hurry. You got a hundred turns in. You've now got a weapon that does way more damage, but costs a billion dollars mm-hmm. and is super and uh, and has shitty range. Oops, sorry. Has oh, you can cut from this podcast. It's adequate range. So <laughs> so essentially, you you uh, now get to make that decision to. It's going to make the AI's life hard, but you're going to be able to make that decision to essentially customize your tech tree by the way you go up. Um, currently, you can actually then go back later and and research those lower ones you skipped or ah. do all three of them on your way up. Mm-hmm. Um, but each one gets more expensive. So if you go all the way up and then go back to that first one, it's going to cost you just as much as okay. if it was all the way at the top. Sure. The other idea that we've kicked around is literally making it so you have to choose one. I don't like that because... I'm a completionist, and I want to be able to play a month-long game and say, oh, I did the whole tech tree. Mm-hmm. Whereas if one the minute you say, nope, you did this, you did this, you did this, you're done with that branch of the tree, it, I, I, I shy away from that. Mm-hmm. But I'm not saying we won't eventually. If it turns out that that works better and makes the game more fun, sure. we'll have to do that. But yeah, so we're pushing that. We want decisions. We want... I mean, in a weird way, Galsiv, because of the ship designer, um, has become a game about customizing your experience. We have we've had people write like the uh, 
little novellas about their galaxies and and how the the great war took place and and how and they you know and we want every game to feel like that like it was a special experience mm-hmm. and uh and by the those decisions make that possible whereas if it just becomes always do this always do this always do this always do this to win then it's you lose that uniqueness right so appropriately enough, uh, for the, the final question I want to ask you about, the final topic I want to touch on for uh, Galsiv 3, and actually for sci-fi games in general, uh, I, I want to start by briefly criticizing a game I've, I've played recently, which I really like, called Age of Wonders 3. Uh, these these are uh, some folks in the I think the Netherlands called Triumph Studios. They've been doing these Age of Wonders games for I think ten years. Uh, this is their third one. Um, it's a beautiful game. It's a beautiful game, and I really like the amount of personality and the the asymmetry amongst the races. They uh, definitely pushed the tactical combat model because it's mainly a, a, a combat based game, uh, and they've done a great job with the AI in the tactical combat, with giving the tactical combat personality. Um, you know, I think of, of fantasy games that I like as much as Fallen Enchantress, and Age of Wonders 3 is up there. However, one of my criticisms of it, and, and one of the the reasons that I have a hard time starting a new game of it, this is a huge disincentive for me, I feel that developer, you know, any storyteller, whether you're making a game or making a movie or writing a book, one of the things you should start with is where you leave the listener. Namely, where it will end. If you're going to tell me a, a story, if you're going to show me a movie or have me read a book, I want you to keep in mind where I'm going to be when I am done. I want you to keep in mind what the finale is going to be, what the conclusion of the experience will be. You know, the climax is the climax for a reason of, of a narrative. So similarly, in a game, I feel like too many game developers – they should worry about the beginning of a game because that's a huge barrier to entry. How do I learn these rules? How do I uh, understand the rules of this universe? How do I figure out the interface? That's hugely important. And game developers, by and large, they're doing a fantastic job with that, with how to ease the player into the gameplay experience. And that's necessary. In the market today, with so much competition, they have to know how to do that well. And they're getting really good at it. What they're not getting good at is the ending. And and like crappy like games end with a crappy boss battle or... But like when you're making a game, think of how the finale is going to go first. Think of that. Keep that in mind. Similarly, so in terms of Age of Wonders 3, I feel like those guys at Triumph Studios, there's no real meaningful end game. They've created this great opening. Uh, they've created a cool universe to play in, this great tactical combat. But by the time I get to the end of the game, I'm literally expected to conquer every single city on the map, and that's long after I've already won. You know, I'm just doing the mopping up phase. So in a strategy game, there have been ways to solve that, and Stardock has done a great job with alternate victory conditions and with, with cultural victories and territory control. Firaxis, by the way, has done a great job with that with, uh, as far back as Alpha Centauri and the early of Civ IV. Um, so you have talked, Paul, about making sure that there's not a micromanagement nightmare, that somebody can have 50 planets and 100 ships, and it's still manageable. Talk to me, though, about the in-game experience of, as far as that narrative goes, what different ways can I win the game? You know, what? how do I avoid just mopping up planets? Um, and in a way, I think you could probably just carry over the stuff that was in Galsiv 2, uh, but what are your thoughts for how to, to wind down a game, how to let the player win 
a, a game of Gaussian three. Well, a lot of essentially a lot of what we will be doing is carrying over and mm-hmm. enhancing yep. what we had in Gaussian two. Um, one of the greatest things that people love about Gaussian two is that, and and I know that you know people play for the war and they they they. Ex- I would win a lot of times with influence because. Sure. I mostly am just like, hey, you, I would build up my military enough to keep everybody away, and then I would essentially buy up the galaxy, you know. And that's that was a fun game, and that appeals to a certain type of person that doesn't want to fight constant battles and constant wars. And then there's other people who just want to go out and crush everybody. And by the way, so, Paul, I want to interrupt real quick because I think that was a way around this this. Uh, a lot of times when you do an alliance victory, you're having to deal with that weird black box of diplomacy. Like, what's yeah. going on? Why won't he be my ally? When you introduce a currency, when you make it a rules-based, numbers-based system with influence, you don't have to so much worry about that black box of AI. Yeah. So I just want to interrupt there. So, so No, okay. no, we, uh, it's all being accounted for. Good. You won't see it in until like beta 2 or beta 3, but yeah, that's all coming in. Um, the, the AI, unfortunately, the diplomacy is so tied into AI that we don't even sure. want to expose it to players until Brad can be full time working on the AI. Right. Um, because we're you know we're writing all the structure for it, we're doing a lot of it, but we need that Brad Wardell black magic to make the AI feel alive. And sure. and uh, so that's why we're not really exposing that. But yeah, we victory has always been very important. It's one of the things we we even have a condition like I was just mentioning influence condition where you don't even have to conquer the whole galaxy. You don't have to conquer seventy percent or whatever or eighty, and boom, you won. Or an alliance victory where you have to ally with of uh, five people or whatever or the majority of the races and you win. Or um, you have to be elected to the in. We're going to have um, we'll have a, a twist on that in the UP where you can essentially win by being elected like emperor of the galaxy kind of thing mm-hmm. um there there's technological victory which i'm it's one of the weaker victories in gals of two uh, i always felt dirty when i got it because <laughs> because it was like well there's no way in the world i'm gonna win this game i'm gonna start spending all you know build a bulwark here hide myself and right. spend all my money getting to the tech victory so we're trying to come up with a slightly more interesting way um to, to make that more fun, but it's more or less still going to be a technological victory. Paul, that's called, um, a, that's called turtling, and there's no need to be ashamed of turtling. Yeah, I know, I know, but it still <laughs> feel, it felt dirty because there was just essentially this magic research victory button. Right. right? And I always felt like it was kind of just, just grinding. And it's basically not, it conceding, well, there's no other way I'm going to yeah. win. I guess I'll do this one. Well, yeah. I want you essentially to be able to feel like you achieved something by getting it. Well, there's also there's a certain inevitability about that. Like if I yeah. keep pushing my way towards this one distant point, okay, the game's going to end and I'll win. You don't actually have to do anything. You just keep along that course and it invariably happens if you don't die And then we have, um, we have uh, Ascension, which we introduced in Twilight, which we'll right. still be in. And you'll essentially have to hold a certain number of... Uh, it's almost kind of a capture of the flag, but hold them for a really long time, yep. thing, and you can essentially ascend to uh, a higher intelligence and win the game that way. So we have a lot of ways. And then even just in regular classic um, a conquest victory, which is all that's in the alpha right now, which is totally easy because AI is an idiot, but you, um, we have always never been too proud to have a player surrender. So when we know, when the AI knows, there is no way I'm going to win. I mean, you know, I'm, I've got I've won. Right. We'll literally have the AI go, 
oh, damn you, and <laughs> bit your face, and boom, you won. Right. You know, um, we actually had to introduce an option um, to, to turn off surrender because there are people who are completionists and want to wipe, who do want to go right, around right. and wipe everybody out. So we'll let them do that too. But we have the, you know, we literally like, we'll, we'll have, or if you're going to win because none of the races left have a chance, we'll make it so that, well, hey, this guy's going to surrender, but hey, he's going to surrender to the guy who's against you. And all of a sudden, now that guy has a chance. Ah, so we, right. And all of a sudden, the game, late game, you thought you had it all wrapped up. Bam, game's alive again. Um, we have, you know, some crazy uh, galactic events that, you know, are sometimes optional because some people don't like them that literally will go, wow, he's totally smoking the game. Uh, bam, this crazy thing happens and the game comes to live again for another 50 turns and then you probably will beat it and be back to winning again. But it, it, it keeps that, we don't want that monotony, especially as the galaxies get bigger and bigger, you know, I own two-thirds of a giant galaxy. There's still be 100, 150 planets out there. I'm not going to go, I don't want to have to go get everyone, you know. But I also want the ability to do it if I want to, so. Great. Uh, so currently you can be an early adopter. You, you mentioned uh, in the uh, indeterminate future, but along the, you know, coming down the pike is a, a more conventional beta option. Yes. Uh, is this uh, a 2015 release? 2014? Yes. Like what? Okay, so sometime in 2015, Galsiv 3 will be out. We'll be playing the final version, correct? Yes. Awesome. And it will be out, you know, we're saying a year. Um, but uh, it could be less. But honestly, um, we're comfortable enough right now, and we're self-publishing it. We have Steam now. We don't have to answer to publishers. Do you have to get this in the box? If the game is not awesome, uh, we'll push it. But sure. I think we have plenty of time to make it awesome. And I'm already planning uh, things for the expansions and things for DLC. I have some really crazy little things that don't really fit into a, the, the main arc of the story, but everybody's always wanted that we can put in as DLC and, you know, and, and whereas the expansions will continue the arc of the story, but like, we'll just have lots of neat, fun things. One of the things you mentioned to the, the star bases, I, and I haven't honestly figured out how to do it yet, but one of the expansions I'd like to do, or even a DLC is a more elaborate star base system that is almost like you could have a race that just lives in star bases. Sure. Sure. You know, that would be awesome, but it's such a weird game breaking thing and all these exceptions that it really doesn't belong in the base game. But we, those are the types of things we're planning on. I would love to have essentially a ship designer kind of situation for star bases. So people could build crazy, you know, crazy star bases and stuff like that. So well, now what you're making me think of, uh, there's a race like this in, uh, in Mass Effect. I forget what they're called, but like the nomadic race that only lives in a fleet of ships that yeah. moves around the universe. Put, put that on your DLC list as well. Yeah, we I, also I have like, idea. I want people who can live in asteroids or colonize right, yeah. asteroids. I mean, there's all these, every idea that anybody's had, we've either had or, you know, put on a wish list. Um, so, yeah, there's great things coming. I'm really excited. Our core effort right now is get the base game as fun as possible. Um, it might be a little more simpler than than some people are going to want because Twilight was pretty crazy. Um, 
but we're gonna we're keeping ninety percent, ninety nine percent of what was in Twilight and adding a lot more. But we have another ninety nine percent of things that we'd like to do, sure. and those will come along as they are fitting to to make the game fun. Great. Well, Paul, I thank you so much for spending uh, time with me today. I wish you best of luck with, uh, I guess, the next year or so, uh, and I look forward to seeing how it turns out. All right. Well, it was nice talking to you. I'm really excited, and uh, uh, it's nice to meet a a fellow ship design fan. Uh, Yeah, don't don't listen to people who complain. (laughs) (laughs) I have to, unfortunately. (laughs) That is is your job, guys. Fair enough. It doesn't mean I can't play favorite. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much, Paul. All right. So thank you again to Paul Boyer. Again, apologies for losing the first part of the podcast. Uh, sorry about that. Um, let's see. So uh, next week, I hope you will join us. Uh, I spoke earlier on the podcast about my colleague, Bruce Garrick. Bruce is doing a really cool series uh, with a podcast called Three Moves Ahead, uh, where he's talking about Vietnam in board game design. Uh, he's spoken to three different board game designers about what is, uh, similarly to this science fiction topic, by the way, what does Vietnam offer your design? You know, what are you doing with this? How are you translating what's unique about Vietnam into uh, a board game? Um, so he's got those three podcasts. And what he has done uh, with me next week is we have kind of a companion piece to those episodes on Three Moves Ahead. So next week, Bruce and I will talk to a board game designer who has an upcoming expression of Vietnam in a board game. And uh, I feel very fortunate that we got to talk to this guy. I love some of what this guy has done. He's doing things that I feel, no exaggeration, I feel safe in calling utterly unique. In, in board game design uh, and he will join me and Bruce next week uh, so I hope you'll join us for that uh, again happy May 4th <laughs> may the force be with you oh, God, I can't believe I'm saying that uh, and join us next week as, as Bruce and I talk some Vietnam uh, and until then thanks a lot have a good week and we'll see everyone next week